0: This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of Independent Community Radio Station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews3 crorgau Oh, everybody's talking all this stuff about me. Why don't they
1: just let
2: Spears, my prerogative, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Richard Keane from Living Positive Victoria joins us to discuss the need to expand Medicare access to HIV treatments for those residents from overseas who are currently ineligible to receive them. We also chat with Holly Durant from Dermal Dimensions, an 80-hour arts event at RMIT in Melbourne. And later, Holly Brook from Pride in Protest joins us to talk about their activist motions at the Sydney Mardi Gras AGM.
1: You're listening to 3CR Radio.
2: And Richard Keane from Living Positive Victoria joins us in the studio. Welcome
0: to 3CR, Richard. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me in.
2: It's a great pleasure. Our Medicare access for foreign-born residents who can't currently get HIV treatments on Medicare? I believe it's about 900 people we're talking about.
0: Yes, yeah, so a um, survey done last year by the National Association of People Living with HIV estimated around 900 people. But one of my peer navigators at Living Positive Victoria sees usually two to three new people in that situation each week. So that number is growing rapidly and particularly affecting students is a main focus group for us. The Victorian state government sort of lifted the cap from the number of students that can come into Victoria earlier this year because it was reached really early in April and that was 27,000 and I think that they've opened the cap to without a number attached to it for next year and the years ahead because it's such a huge part of Melbourne's economy. But part of that will be this ongoing issue and these numbers will continue to rise unless it's addressed in an effective way. And is part of the issue
2: that they're new diagnoses who can't actually, weren't able to get PrEP?
0: It's a mixture of both. I think with the PrEP situation, we've also got access issues around PrEP, but PrEP can be imported for a relatively reasonable cost of around $30 a month or something. But I guess when you're a student, that can be challenging as well. I think as well as students has a range of other ineligible people for Medicare and that's overseas visitors working, studying or holidaying in Australia and migrants who are refugees or on humanitarian entrance here who have applied for a permanent residency or asylum seekers to Australia who are all ineligible for Medicare. So we've got a combination of some people who may have been living with HIV in the country that they came from and maybe had not tested for HIV at that time or we've got new diagnosis occurring here as well in Melbourne. So at the moment we've got compassionate access which is provided by both of the big pharma companies in Australia which we're really happy about but the process for gaining that compassionate access is is quite complicated and some of the treatments aren't first-line treatments that are available so there's a range of complications around that and there's bigger health issues which we'll probably talk about as well here.
2: Absolutely. So tell us about this complicated process.
0: So it requires a lot of referrals, a lot of signing of documents, identification and all of those other things that are engaged with that and the process to apply can take a little while. It means that when somebody's receiving a new diagnosis and they are Medicare ineligible, we kind of, I guess it makes me reflect on my privilege here in Australia as well as somebody who's been living with HIV for 30 years now. I was diagnosed when I was 19 and um, right from the time that we had access to a effective treatments from about 97, I've never had interrupted access to my treatments. It's always been affordable here. And these kinds of situations really made me look at the privilege that I have as an Australian citizen living here in Australia and accessing those treatments. And I think there's some really important underlying issues as to why we have to extend that care to other people who are here in Australia as well. So
2: even if someone gets compassionate access, there can be quite a delay in receiving the treatment. That must have an impact on disease progression.
0: It can do, and particularly disease progression. And our concern is that some people are having a dialogue around why would you test for HIV when you're here in Australia when the result can impact your ability to stay here. It can impact your visa. It can impact your student status. It can impact across a whole range of areas because of the... Estimated costs of long term treatment in Australia means it's an inhibitor for for people who are applying for permanent residency, except under a couple of really special circumstances.
2: So if someone does test positive and they are a visitor from overseas, uh, how does the government find out? Or, or you know, are there, are there mandatory reporting requirements? Like, What's the story there?
0: Well, uh, the government sort of doesn't really have a role in it. Sometimes if you're applying for permanent residency here, there'll be a HIV test engaged with that process. But if you're coming here from a refugee country or something else like that and you're part of that process and intake that's usually not part of the process. And some people find when they get here, particularly uh, women from sub-Saharan African regions and things like that, that they may have been living with HIV for a while. And some of these people, uh, because they've been living with HIV for a while, do have quite a serious disease progression and sometimes even AIDS-defining illnesses, you know. And I think AIDS has dropped off The lexicon here, when we talk about HIV in Australia, we talk about it being a manageable chronic illness and uh, it's not like that for some people.
2: So HIV can actually affect someone's asylum seeker application or refugee application. That's outrageous. Yeah. Yeah, it can. So you mentioned before that when someone applies for compassionate access and they get these these HIV treatments, they 're not frontline products. what What exactly are they receiving?
0: If that's I think the it's case? cost so they're still effective treatments, very effective treatments that have been around for a while, so they're not the newer treatments that have just come onto the PBS here in Australia, but um, i 've got to acknowledge the pharma companies for doing that. They don 't have to do that. they provide compassionate access for between nine hundred and a thousand people, and the cost of that is quite large. As you could imagine, um, but it's not a it's not a solution. And I've also got to say that everybody at the table in the HIV response is genuinely looking for a way to solve this issue. And um, it's really a federal issue, but there's a little bit of concern that if you push it too much, you might end up with larger restrictions around HIV rather than being able to support the people who are here currently. And uh, our state government, and as I said before, we make around about $8 billion a year from students coming to Australia and to Victoria in particular. And I think we need to find a solution and we need to get states and federal government working together instead of handing it back. It's very easy for the state government. They're genuinely concerned about this issue. And on World AIDS Day, we had the Health Minister, Jenny McCarcos, there who acknowledged when the president of my organisation, Adam M, spoke about this issue, she acknowledged his call to action, and she said that they were currently exploring what they might be able to do. And we also have a very good network in Canberra called Friends of HIV Network, which is a bipartisan committee from people from both sides of the House, and they come together, and they are genuinely looking for ways to be able to engage this in an environment where there's not a lot of support for changing these kinds of status as some people in more conservative arms see it as a drawing as something that will draw people here so that that's the challenge that we've got to you know
2: so we could be heading towards a situation here in Victoria where the Andrews government is actually subsidising HIV treatments for people from overseas who are, who are here as students, for example.
0: Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I hope something can be worked out between state and federal government where they might actually have a transparent process where that happens. At the moment, we are certainly providing support for people, but it's kind of done under the table. And it's, you know, so there is genuine concern and there's effort going in to support these people while they're here so that their health is maintained while they're here. But as I said earlier, one of the main concerns is people are having that discussion around, why should I test here? And and I guess the other thing to consider is there's a lot of cultural implications that impact on people's identity and focus when they're here. And so some people, I was talking to a Chinese gay guy recently who's been here for about six years and currently doing his master's here, but he was saying that the sexual health literacy is non existent in those countries and particularly he said that he got his information from Grindr. So he landed on the tarmac in Sydney and the first thing he did was download the Grinder app on his phone and that was his sexual sort of you know, education and things like that. He knew about the site and everything else, couldn't access it in China, but as soon as he got here, he downloaded that app. But there's issues in engaging with that when you don't have strong sexual health literacy, poor negotiation, other issues like that impacting, uh, I guess, the equity of people in those situations. So, yeah. And I
2: guess if people can't access treatments, and of course, uh, if they are HIV positive, they've got a viral load that can mean that uh, there's transmission throughout the community that would be prevented if the government was actually giving them appropriate treatment.
0: Yeah. Again, I'd like to reinforce that people do get compassionate access. And so there are ways and channels of doing that. They're not perfect, like I was saying, but you're right to signal the concern that we have, particularly around viral load and people being able to transmit HIV because of that high viral load, uh, particularly if they're engaging with MSM sex within their own communities. And there's quite a real diverse range of communities who are students here in Melbourne. And we talk about Asian MSM and the increase in in those populations of people who weren't born in Australia. People who are born in Australia, we've seen those diagnoses starting to fall. PrEP, the real success around that, the stories, and also U equals U, and the understanding now that people who are on effective treatments with undetectable viral load can't transmit HIV to their sexual partners. So we've seen one section of our community really start to rally and reap the benefits but then we've got a whole lot of people and some of them quite invisible walking around living in our city now who may not have access and may also be fearful to go in for that HIV test or a sexual health test because of the circumstances around their insurance, which they have to pay for before they arrive in Australia, but often that might have been paid for by a parent or somebody else and they're afraid if they use that that service to access sexual health treatments that that information may be re- relayed back um, to the person that paid for that.
2: So of the people who are born overseas who are testing positive in Australia, how many of them are living positive Victoria reaching who are, who are here in Victoria? Are you just getting to the tip of the iceberg? Uh, You mentioned all these people that perhaps, you know. I think we
0: are and there's a range of reasons for that. And look, um, we have changed the way that we work. Our peer navigation um, program that I was talking about earlier has three different peer navigators which work in partnership with high caseload clinics. So when they get a new diagnosis or maybe somebody who's fallen out of care over time, they can have the support of a peer to work through some of those issues. Um, And what The main feedback that I'm getting, particularly from uh, our MSM um, peer navigator, is that he's, as I said before, he's seeing two or three new students a week. He's from a migrant community background. So there's also that attraction and that connection to him through those programs. So we are having people come into our organisation and making us aware of these emerging issues uh, from day to day. But it's an ongoing concern. And I think that I think even when we're talking about MSM and Asian MSM, I think automatically people, and it's a colonial white thing, I think, uh, but automatically we think of Chinese, we think of people from Singapore or maybe Malaysia, but we're not thinking of South Asian men like, Pakistanis Indian or Sri Lankan background and things like that so I think we actually have to broaden our own view of who's included in that cohort that we kind of squash in to Asian MSM and and I think that we have to find ways to engage those people into our communities and one of the main issues that uh, my peer navigator talks about is they ask him questions after a diagnosis because they might have an arranged marriage that they have to go back to in four years time do I need to tell my wife I'm not really gay, I just I, I just have sex with men occasionally and a whole range of cultural taboos and other things that need to be kind of unpacked and really carefully worked through when engaging with these communities and the impact of a HIV diagnosis and I think the other thing is that a lot of people come here and they come from high prevalence countries where that messaging is omnipresent, it's absolutely everywhere, it's on a bus, it's in the bus stop, it's warning you about HIV and things, they come to Australia, they don't see that that same level of messaging and they think it's a safe place where they're not going to contract HIV. They hear it's a small problem. They hear it's under control. So there's a whole range of uh, issues that are impacting on the current circumstances that we're dealing with. Richard Keane,
2: fascinating. Shane with you. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR. And keep us posted. You are an interface on 3CR. Here's Taylor Swift. Thanks. Yeah. We shake it off you're on in your face on 3cr with james well dermal dimensions is an 80 hour non-stop arts event at rmit in melbourne it's currently underway until the 8th of december on the line we have its curator holly durant holly welcome to 3cr hi james thank you holly it sounds awesome what can we expect dermal dimensions over the next couple of days
3: yeah you can expect lots of different things but um yeah, just this kind of arc of all sorts of um, amazing kind of events unfolding over this long period. But essentially, I have a, a gallery space up here at RMIT's building, too, that I've been given permission to sort of transform the whole thing into this kind of um, sort of inwardly referencing world. So in a way, we're sort of trying to stop the flow of time and sort of ask everyone to get off reality and into this other little surreal dimension that we've sort of crafted out of you know, a million different materials, including sort of like energy and memory and sort of playing at people's kind of, um, you know, their own sort of energetic material that they carry around with them. But there's kind of things as simple as just coming into to observe the gallery, as far as sort of like big electronic music sets and dance floors. There's a bar in here, there are sort of crafted drinks and edibles that people can kind of get involved with. So the room has a specific scent that's been sort of tailored. And there are kind of incidental performances that happen all the time and there are a couple of really focused performances that happen in the evening. One is a work by me and then there's a larger sculptural movement choir that do a big response to the space in movement. But, but it's quite epic.
2: In this sort it of sounds epic. Look, you're known for using your body as a political agent in your works. How do you do that in dermal dimensions?
3: Yes, it's an interesting one. This is of the culmination of a, of a body of research, but I, I sort of started out with this question around sort of like, why are certain bodies or the images of certain type of bodies sort of separated from their owners if we look back into kind of the history of art or if we look back at the culture of advertising, the way in which sort of certain images aren't really belonging to those bodies that we look at. If I can think of a classic one as sort of the female nude and sort of classic art or or the way in which perhaps female bodies are used in advertising and sort of that sort of 70s and 80s commodification Mm -hmm. sort of paradigm. So my leaping-off point was how come those bodies don't get to belong to their owners? Why are other bodies different? So I got to this big sort of intersection of how lots of bodies are perhaps not as um, unified and celebrated as they should be with their owners. And as I kept sort of plugging through and digging in and going back to, okay, well, what is a body? You know, How do we even start this? question, this idea, I had to sort of really recalibrate my own experience and my, you know, I have one type of body, it has these experiences and I had to really broaden and broaden and broaden. But I've kind of arrived at this sort of idea that perhaps one of the ways we could start to chip away at those really tired and unnecessary stereotypes and tropes of bodies is perhaps we could start to build these little pockets of surreality reality where in these little sort of dimensions or worlds... Perhaps there are no histories and no codes and no stereotypes and we can sort of rewrite or get a chance to rethink what our bodies are and what they can do and be sort of newly fascinated with their possibilities is kind of the guts of where I'm heading to, I think. But
2: Your work yeah. also seeks to dismantle daily binaries. What does that mean?
3: It's exactly this idea that we look at a certain body and we expect it to behave in a certain way and, and also a little bit about um, how we deal with spaces, with our bodies in spaces. One of the kind of obvious ones in this work is kind of this idea of the gallery, you know, how people come into the gallery and what they're expected to do. Are they meant to be quite quiet? Are they meant to be reverent? You know, quite often we're in the end of the gallery during the day. So I'm sort of trying to pull that apart a little bit and ask this question about, okay, we're gonna celebrate or dismantle these ideas about our bodies, what can we do social space and social actions that would sort of support that? So in this particular gallery space you can come in more or less twenty four hours a day, so you can observe in any way you like. All of the sculpture that's part of this work is sort of designed to be touched or handled. A lot of it you can taste or smell or listen to. So I'm sort of looking at this multi layered response. We kind of call it like a heterotopia, this like multi idea of having a kind of a an ideal or a calming or a sort of next level experience. But looking at the way in which galleries so often behave like that. Like quite often the theatre or the gallery might tell us how to watch something and I'm trying to suggest that perhaps the watching or observing bodies could choose how they like to move through space. So it's a little bit about trying to suggest that this space is at once kind of like a theatre, a gallery, a lounge room, a cafe, um, a wellness space. and you know, people can come in and do somatic experiences here. I guide them through sort of moving into some of the sculptures and thinking about their bodies and feeling certain things and holding weight of objects and, yeah, so it's kind of looking at that transformation of social space, which I think as we get kind of denser and denser in, in, in urban environments, it becomes a really interesting question about why does a gallery close at night and nothing happens there, perhaps, or a theatre is closed during the day or are there ways that a lot of our community actions could happen in a lot more public spaces? Could be an interesting question,
2: maybe. Awesome stuff, Holly Durant. Thanks so much for joining us today on 3CR. Dermal Dimension sounds truly fascinating. <laughs>
3: Thanks, James, great to
2: be with you. Dido cheers.
1: What are you taking for beauty's sake? What are you taking for beauty's sake?
4: What are you taking?
1: Why
2: Beauty's sake, you're on in your face on 3CR with James. While at the recent Sydney Mardi Gras AGM activist group Pride in Protest successfully moved motions about pharmaceutical giant Galeed, which manufactures HIV medicines, and about establishing an ethics charter at Mardi Gras. On the line, we have Holly Brook from Pride in Protest. Holly, welcome to 3CR. Hi, thanks for
3: having me. Tell us sure. the
2: consequences of Gilead's high treatment prices, especially in the US.
5: So if you're not either very, very wealthy or have, you know, comprehensive private health insurance, you simply can't access this particular medication that can stop the spread of HIV. So it puts a lot of queer people um, who, you know, might be poorer working class at risk of HIV, when in Australia, the same drug is made available for $8.
2: Wow, so there's a huge discrepancy, isn't there? So how was the motion received at Mardi Gras?
5: It was fought very, very hard. Um, really? We won it by only about 10 votes in a room in the uh, in the context of over 500 votes uh, in total. The margin was only 10 votes when we finally won this motion um, after a lot of debate, a lot of discussion.
2: Wow, so why was it so hotly contested? I mean it seemed like a bit of a no-brainer.
5: I mean I think we shouldn't as an organization Mardi Gras shouldn't be accepting money from corporates to you know cause harm at all but especially not to our own community. We've put motions around a couple of different big corporations um, that Mardi Gras has affiliated with, and this is actually the only one that, that won. So there seems to have been a lot, of, particularly from the sort of right faction of Mardi Gras, who very strongly oppose speaking out against corporates at all. I think that was the opposition, just this really intense unwillingness to speak out at all in any way that could um, potentially impact Mardi Gras' bottom line. Now, of course, on our side, we were arguing from (laughs) an ethics framework that we shouldn't be taking blood money.
2: Absolutely. So, Galeed clearly has a sponsorship arrangement with Mardi Gras? It does, yes. So, how much money are they putting into the organisation? Can you tell us?
5: I actually am not aware of that. No, sorry. (laughs) That's the top of my head.
2: So, um, wow. So how how has it been received amongst the community in Sydney? I imagine plenty of people are saying this was a great move by by your group, Pride in Protest.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the room, there were tears, hugs, screaming, cheers. I mean, it's incredible. Mardi Gras is this huge world you know, known organisation and parade, and even just, you know, condemning this unethical behaviour on the part of the corporation can send a huge message. So in terms of reception, there's a lot of relief, I think, and relief that finally Pride in Protest has actually had some, some wins on our motions.
2: Pride in Protest, of course, also successfully moved another motion, this time about establishing an ethics charter at Mardi Gras. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah, so we did move three specific motions around three specific corporate sponsors. So one of them being obviously Gilead, and then also around Qantas for its role in deporting refugees, many of whom are, are, are queer or trans, back to countries that they say are best for their, you know, sexuality. And around ANZ for being a massive, massive um, investor in, in arms manufacturing. So we moved sort of three specific motions around um, corporate sponsors that we've identified as, you know, incredibly unethical. So at the moment, we have been assured that behind closed doors, the board does discuss you know, against some kind of ethics framework. To the best of our knowledge, that framework only looks at whether those corporations have, you know, solid workers' rights for people who work at those corporations and nothing to do with sort of the broader impact on society, on the world of those corporations.
2: Holly, we were chatting before about Pride in Protest's motion in relation to Qantas and the fact that it failed. Tell us about that motion and why it failed. I would have thought Mardi Gras would have been opposed to uh, refugees being deported.
5: I mean, I thought this motion really might pass this year. So I brought this same motion to last year's AGM with Pride in Protest, and it was the motion of ours that looked like it was closest to passing. So I had hoped, especially as the Qantas motion this year came right after the Gilead motion, that that we'd get some, some traction here. But the thing I found really upsetting was I kind of presented the motion to the room and explained why it was so important, you know, the fact that Qantas is a contract of the Australian government that does put refugees at risk of harm on Qantas planes and sends them back to places where they face torture and and death in some cases. I kind of explain the importance of that and the fact that there are right now several Saudi Arabian gay journalists facing deportation from Australia back to Saudi Arabia. Now That will likely be a Qantas plane or there's a couple of other airlines that engage. The Mardukar AGM really looked quite sympathetic. There were people in the audience crying people nodding people agreeing that it's wrong that you know refugees from our own queer community are being put on planes by our corporate sponsors to, to face you know torture and death and yet a lot of those same people then turned around and voted against the motion and so we've done some kind of pride and process discussions around this internally why is it that Gilead kind of that motion was supported and Qantas um, wasn't unfortunately our view is that but the Gilead motion is probably just so close to home for some, for especially the older Mardi Gras members. You know, these are a lot of people in this community lived through the AIDS crisis, the HIV crisis, um, and lost friends and family to that crisis. Now, one would hope that, you know, a, a desire to save queer lives would extend to queer refugee lives, you know, black and brown queer refugee lives. But it seems like that, you know, that level of personal involvement, engagement, empathy just isn't there in the same way as it is. When there's been some kind of lived experience.
2: So, what were some of the arguments that, that people used in favour of continuing to have this sponsorship arrangement between Qantas and Mardi Gras, when uh, Qantas does deport refugees who are potentially facing the death penalty?
5: A lot of people have raised that. Yes, refugees are an important issue, but that's not our problem. You know, you know, the queer community is our community, but refugees as its own issue, its own you know community, its own campaigning. You know. Um, campaign groups and things like that. That's not us. And so it's, you know, we shouldn't politicize an We shouldn't get involved in that other unrelated political. Now, I mean, I raised that the refugees in Australian detention centers are disproportionately queer and trans because there are lots of people who come here seeking asylum on the basis of their sexuality, you know, but that argument didn't seem to be accepted, unfortunately. I think that people perceive there to be distance between the refugee campaign and the queer rights campaign as two distinct things.
2: There must have been some incredible emotion when the motion failed and some real bitterness in the room. How is Mardi Gras reconciling that? How are they dealing with the fallout?
5: To my knowledge, they aren't really yet um, or, or really at all addressing that. It was kind of moved on from very, very quickly, unfortunately.
2: Wow. Okay. So it sounds like it's really important then that Pride in Protest is highlighting this issue. What kinds of activities can we expect from Pride in Protest, particularly at the Mardi Gras Festival, which is only a few months away, a couple of months away? Yes.
5: Well, I'm, I'm so happy you've raised that because I was going to give a little plug to the um, the No Pride in Detention float. So Pride in Protest as a, a group kind of grew out of um, No Pride in Detention, which is a float. And an organisation that's been going for a good couple of years now. Now a couple of a couple of the years in the parade, no private detention has been the biggest non-corporate float. And the whole gist of it is highlighting that Mardi Gras started as a protest around human rights, justice, equality. It started initially with, you know, chants including um, "Stop police attacks on gays, women, and blacks." So like Mardi Gras has always been intersectional, has always cared about issues around racism. So No Pride in Detention has a float um, talking about the fact there are lots of queer refugees locked in Australian detention camps and there is no pride in Australia having detention camps at all. So that will definitely be a big one. We will be running the same float this year or next year now, I suppose, in March. So anyone in Sydney who feels like travelling to Sydney, please come and join that, um, join that float in March with us, You know, talking about keep- keeping this issue on the agenda, I suppose.
2: Does Pride in Protest have any supporters on the Mardi Gras board that might actually result in uh, Mardi Gras' policies around some of these issues, especially Qantas softening or being overturned?
5: Well, we got our uh, lead candidate this year, Charlie Murphy, actually did get elected to the Mardi Gras board, which we were ecstatic to hear about. Um, And so she's already in there, you know, making arguments. I think there's only been one board meeting so far, uh, but she'll absolutely be taking up these issues to the board and also Pride and Protest plan to get involved with, well, hopefully community consultation around the ethics charter that Mardi Gras um, AGM has said they'll develop. So we can probably continue to push those arguments there. Of course, Pride in Protest is considering, you know, running again for the board next year, running, um, putting, putting up motions again. I certainly hope to bring a motion around Qantas from someone in Pride in Protest uh, next year um, and really keep keep pushing hard.
2: What's uh, morale at Mardi Gras within the organisation like following these uh, debates, which sound very heated and quite toxic at the AGM?
5: Well, there haven't really been any, any sort of events in person since then that, that Mardi Gras kind of has hosted that Pride and Protest have been at. So really the only engagement we've had is um, Charlie, our newly elected board member, going along to a meeting, which she said, you know, went fine. <laughs> um, of course, there is a lot of anger on, you know, both sides. Um, but I guess to see how that develops down the line.
2: Absolutely. Holly Brook, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today on 3CR and keep up the great work with Pride in Protest.
5: Thank you so much.
2: Great pleasure. Cheers.
5: You're listening
1: to 3CR Radio.
2: In Your Face, we'd like to thank Thornhubber Health for their financial support of this program. Vaughan Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Vaughan Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.